Because man must not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God, please open your Bible to the book of Joel. The book of Joel, it's on page 807, and it goes to page 810 in the Pew Bible. If you don't have a Bible, there's this black hardcover Bible in the chair in front of you. Turn to page 807 if you want to see the same, if you want to be in the same uh, spot and same translation. We're reading out the Christian Standard Bible. I'm going to read verses 1 through 7. Joel 1, 1 through 7, but we are going to go through the whole book of Joel this morning as we continue our overview series on the minor prophets, okay? Here then, God's word from Joel chapter 1, verses 1 through 7. The word of the Lord that came to Joel, son of Pethuel. Hear this, you elders. Listen, all you inhabitants of the land. Has anything like this ever happened in your days or in the days of your ancestors? Tell your children about it and let your children tell their children and their children the next generation. What the devouring locust has left, the swarming locust has eaten. What the swarming locust has left, the young locust has eaten. And what the young locust has left, the destroying locust has eaten. Wake up, you drunkards, and weep. Wail, all you wine drinkers, because of the sweet wine, for it has been taken from your mouth. For a nation has invaded my land, powerful and without number. Its teeth are the teeth of a lion, and it has the fangs of a lioness. It has devastated my grapevine and splintered my fig tree. It has stripped off its bark and thrown it away. Its branches have turned white. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. May the word of Christ dwell richly among us. Father, this is our prayer with your word in front of us. You have already spoken. The challenge before us is to hear this, to listen, and then to tell our children about it, to wake up, to wail, to grieve, to lament, to repent, and to rejoice. And so, Father, we ask for your Holy Spirit's almighty, powerful help. You said here, even in the book of Joel, that you will pour out your spirit on your people in those days. And here we are in these days, clinging to the power of your spirit to see Jesus, to savor and enjoy Jesus, to trust him and to follow him as a church family and as individuals. So help us, we pray. Help our non-Christian friends this morning. Help our Christian friends from other churches and Christian friends who are not part of any church. Help them to know and follow and trust you this morning as well. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. amen. For little kids who are not kept in the dark and kept ignorant about death, some I know I understand some parents don't like to talk to their kids about it and hide it from them and hide death in general as a taboo topic in our world, but for the parents, or actually for the children who are not hidden from these conversations, but where it's a regular part of the family conversation, Eventually, the children get to a point 
where the, where the, the reality starts to sink in their lives and they start to, to cry out to mom and dad that they're scared of death. It happens inevitably, different ages for different children, but in our family, same thing, just as the conversation is regularly there and as we face that reality and talk about it regularly, there comes a point in the child's life where they're freaked out and scared of death. They'll say regularly during the season, I'm scared of dying. I don't want to die. I don't want you to die. And the problem is that they're right. That death is coming. And it is appointed for man to die once and then comes judgment. Judgment day is coming. And we are indeed one week closer to death and judgment than we were last week. That's just a fact. Every Sunday as we get together, we are one week closer to death. And so as we think about our death and the final judgment, every Christian battles feelings ranging from small degrees of nervousness to straight up terror. Some of us are straight up terrified of death. Um, in my pastoral ministry, there, there's, there's been a time where, where I was visiting a member on their deathbed and they were terrified of death. Almost screaming out to me with all the strength they can, PJ, I don't want to die. You could see it in their eyes, the fear of death. That, that sight of that fear and those words and that grip on my hand, it, I could feel the terror in my own soul about how judgment and death is inevitable. It is terrifying. And many of us are not prepared to die. We're not prepared for judgment. And so God and his prophet Joel have a word for us today. And that word for us is this. Here's the main goal. Prepare yourself as, as judgment day draws near so that you survive and thrive in the kingdom of God. Okay? Prepare yourself. Prepare yourself today. We have prepare for death. Prepare for judgment. Prepare yourself as judgment day draws near, as it gets closer, so that you thrive, so that you survive the judgment and thrive in God's coming kingdom, the kingdom that's here but not yet fully here, the kingdom that is coming when Christ returns. We want you to survive the judgment, right? And we want to thrive in God's kingdom now and when Christ returns. Amen. We don't want to merely survive. So the way we do that is by facing death and judgment, looking at it in the face, and preparing ourselves for that inevitable day. The only way we're not going to die, I've told my children every time, as they get to that point, different kids at different times, I've told them all, you know, some of us won't die. Jesus is going to come back. And that generation those Christians will never die, not even the physical first death. And so we pray, come Lord Jesus. But we also say, wait, Lord Jesus, I got some other friends that I want to get saved. I got some other family members. So it's a, it's a mixed bag of, of emotions as we pray that. But we still pray that with all the saints, trusting God's timing, come Lord Jesus. So, so how do we prepare? How do we prepare for the coming judgment? Three things, three things we need to do increasingly three steps you could say and they're all here in this passage in this book of Joel as we overview the whole book Joel is telling us the way you prepare for the coming judgment is by um what's the first one I had in my mind oh, by recognizing by repenting and by rejoicing three r's if that helps you this morning I don't do that typically but it worked out this way by recognizing the judgment and death that is coming by repenting in light of the judgment and by rejoicing in the hope of salvation through judgment, okay? So recognize chapter one through chapter two, verse 11. 
Repent, chapter 2, verses 12 through 17. That's a small section, but that's the heart of the book. And then chapter 2, 18 to chapter 3, 21, rejoice. Okay, so recognize, repent, and rejoice. So before we get into the command here on this first point of recognizing your coming judgment, because judgment is coming for you, before we get into the heart of it, which is verses 8 through uh, chapter 2, verse 11, in chapters one through, chapter 1, verses 1 through 7, I just read it. Look at verse 1 again. It says, The word of the Lord that came to Joel, son of Pethuel. Now, we don't know much about Joel. There's no historical record of the locusts that sweep across the land and eat up all the, the food, the four waves, or at least four locusts are described here, whether it's four waves or two waves or one wave in different ways. Who knows how it is exactly? But this sweeping a pestilence of locusts that eat up all the food and all the crops and all the resources and leave the land barren, that would have been, you, you would think that's somewhere in the record book, Right? 9-11, in some ways, in world history, might not ever be forgotten, right? Or the Civil War and the Emancipation, Emancipation Proclamation or, or the Revolutionary War, at least for our nation, right? These things are kind of written, in, these big events in our land are going to be recorded somewhere. And so we could date it. Well, with this locust sweeping across the land, we don't know when it happened. But it happened. And there's no record that survived, and so, so we don't know exactly when Joel prophesied. It could have been before the exile or it could have been after the exile um, during Ezra and Nehemiah's rebuilding stage in the nation. I think of it as before the exile, but really it's a toss-up and it could go either way. I think there's good reasons to think of it as after the exile and when they're back in the land, okay? But I'm gonna preach it with somewhat of a perspective of it um, being before the exile, though it really doesn't matter too, too much. It's a timeless message in that regard. It could work either way. So here's the call in verses uh, 2 through 7, this introduction that I already read to you. There was a call. The command is here. Listen in verse 2. And in verse 3, it's a command to tell others what you heard and what you've seen, what's happening in your day. And what happened? Look at verse 4. What are we supposed to listen and tell? Well, the locusts have come. The devouring locust, what the devouring locust has left, the swarming locust has eaten. And what the swarming locust has left and didn't eat in the land, the young locust has eaten. And what the young locust has left, the destroying locust has eaten. There's this great national tragedy. And you know what happens? So, so this, I'm taking it as literal locusts. There's a debate. Are these literal locusts or are these figurative, symbolic locusts of an army coming? I think that Joel is actually playing off one to, 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 to illustrate the other. I think it is real locusts, and he's going to use it to illustrate his point of a real army. But it is real locusts. And so Joel's taking this real national tragedy, and he's saying, here's what we can learn from it. You ever ask that question? Do you remember 9-11? Some of you are too young. Some of you weren't born yet before 9-11. But do you remember where you were during 9-11? Some of you do. Do you remember the questions you were asking? What does this mean? Where is God? What is the meaning of this? If you have a, a, we have all too frequently these days mass shootings, but you get mass shootings and you ask, what, what is going on? What does this mean? And that's a good question for humans to ask. That's something that animals don't ask. Even monkeys, they don't ask that question, what does this mean? They don't care, they don't know, they're not cognizant of it. But humans are because we understand that there are bigger realities and there's meaning to these tragedies. And so the meaning, what, there's locusts sweep across the land. What does this mean? Joel's gonna tell us what it means. And it always, almost always means the same thing. When you see brokenness, the curse, and tragedy, and sin, and death in this world, it almost always means the same thing for us, at least God's message for us. Repent from your sins. 
repent from your sins, and look up to God for hope. That's almost always, there's a lot of other things it could mean specifically, but the general meaning of tragedies is look at yourself in the mirror, look at your people in, as a people, look at yourselves as the people in the mirror, and get on your face and ask God for forgiveness for your sins, for your evil, and go to God for hope. That's almost always what it means. And that's what it means here in Joel, but it, it means something more specific here because there are sp- specific tragedies. Okay, so you got this sweeping land uh, locusts that come through land and they eat up everything. There's nothing left at all. What does it mean? Verses five through seven, I'm taking it to be an interpretation of what it means symbolically. So it's literal locusts, but it means something symbolically, which is also gonna literally happen. Verse five, wake up you drunkards and weep. Okay, so you got the locusts, you know about the national tragedy, you're listening, but what does it mean? It means you need to wake up from your drunkenness. You need to cry, you need to wail. You drunkards, you wine drinkers, why? Because of the sweet wine, for it has been taken from your mouth. The thing you love, the drink, that's getting you drunk, it's taken away. All your resources are taken away. Why? Verse six, for a nation has what? A nation has what? Invaded my land, powerful and without number. Here's a nation coming into God's land. Its teeth are powerful and without number. Its teeth are the teeth of a lion and it has the fangs of a lioness. It has devastated my grapevine and splintered my fig tree. It has stripped off its bark and thrown it away. Its branches have turned white. Now, this is Joel's grapevine and fig tree. Maybe it's God's grapevine and fig tree. When you see God's vine and God's fig tree, what does that symbolize? Anyone know in the Bible? Israel. Israel is God's fig tree. Israel is God's vine. If you read Psalm 80, you could read Judges 9, where it talks about the king represented as a fig tree and a vine in Judges 9. In, in Psalm 80, it has the idea of Israel being God's vine. So a nation has come in, just like the locusts came into land and swept and ate up everything. Now a nation has invaded the land, an army without number, and they have stripped God's fig tree. They have broken, or they've broken down God's fig tree. They have devastated his grape, grapevine. What do we call that? When the nation invades Israel, we're calling that, when when it's this big, great event, what do we call that in Israel's history? The what? The exile. The exile. It's where an army invades the land and takes God's people and doesn't even leave them there, just spreads them out across the nations. You get kicked out of the promised land. The great exile. So what does God command? If that's, if that, if, 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 um, if that's what's happening, that exile is coming, judgment is coming, or if it has come, what does that mean? What's the commands for us? Let me point to you five commands. Look, look, at, look, look at Joel with me. In 1.8, the command is to what? Grieve like a young woman dressed in sackcloth, mourning for the husband of her youth. And that communicates powerfully, doesn't it? Yes. A wife, a young wife, now a young widow, because they just got married and her husband died. I mean, they were just getting started. Maybe she's pregnant. Maybe she just has one child. Maybe they've been married a year, a year and a half. You look forward to getting married and then spending your life together. And then your husband dies. The wife grieves. And God is telling Israel, God is telling us to grieve like that. You grieve like that. Because that's what this judgment means. That's what this exile means. It's this tragic event. Look at 111. Be ashamed, you farmers. Wail, you vine dressers, over the wheat and the barley, because the harvest of the field has perished. So, so be ashamed, 
wail. Look at verse 13. Dress in sackcloth and what's the command here? So dress up in sackcloth and do what? Lament, you priests. Wail, you ministers of the altar. Come and spend the night in sackcloth, you ministers of my God, because the grain and drink offerings are withheld from the house of your God. So, so weep and wail and grieve and mourn and be ashamed and be broken. Cry. And then in verse 14, don't just do it by yourself. Don't just do it as leaders. Do it corporately as God's people, as God's covenant holy nation, God's covenant people. Announce a sacred fast for everyone. Proclaim it to who? Proclaim an assembly. Get together as a nation. Gather together as an assembly, as a gathering. Gather the elders and all the residents of the land at the house of Yahweh your God at the temple and cry out to Yahweh. Prayer meeting. And your clothes, sackcloth. Ashes, the mood, grief, mourning, crying, crying on each other's shoulders, holding each other's hands, weeping together, weeping with those who weep. And then one more command here in verse, chapter 2, verse 1. As you, as you grieve here, blow the horn in Zion. Sound the alarm on my holy mountain. Let all the residents of the land do what? What should you do? What should you do as you sound the alarm and announce it? Tremble. This is why I chose the word recognize, not just because it started with an R, but recognize the judgment. When you recognize what's going on, you grieve. When you recognize the brokenness and sin, you lament. When you recognize it, you pray. When you recognize it, you don't just do it by yourself, you do it with other people. And when you recognize the brokenness and sin and the judgment that's coming, here's the true reason, here's the true way you know you recognize it. You tremble. Your body starts to tremble. You're that freaked out. You're that fearful of the judgment that we deserve as God's so-called covenant people for our sins. That's the call, to recognize the coming judgment with grief, shame, wailing, lamenting, corporate fasting, sounding the alarm, and physical and emotional trembling at the judgment of God. Now, why did Israel need to do this? Why tremble? Okay, so locusts swept through. We're not dead yet. Why tremble? What does this mean? What are we supposed to be fearful of? Well, in verses 9 and 10 of chapter 1, um, we see that the provisions are taken away, that their food and their resources have been taken away. We learned earlier that their wine was taken away. But it's not only their food and resources. Look at verse 11 and 12. This is where it hits the heart. In verse 11, it says, because the harvest field of the field has perished, and then look at verse 12, the grapevine is dried up. Not just the resources, but the grapevine itself. The people are dried up. The fig tree is withered. The pomegranate, the date palm, and the apple, all the trees of the orchard have what? Withered. They've dried up. Indeed, it's not just outside. What has dried up at the end of verse 11? Do you see it there? What has dried up? Indeed, on verse 12, what has dried up? Human what? Human joy has dried up. That's when you know it hits the heart, right? It's not just, it's not just, um, it's not just the resources, but even human joy has withered. It's like locusts have come and taken all the joy from all the people. This is a gloomy people. This is a depressed and devastated and decimated and despairing people. Because God has taken joy, the judgment has taken away the joy of the people. Not just their resources. And those two things go together, right? When you see people suffering, you see your family suffering, and you can't feed them because there's nothing to feed them with, and you're literally slowly dying of hunger and thirst together, you grieve. 
The nation, the joy has dried up. In verse 13, the provisions, even in the temple, where God's flourishing is supposed to come from. Where do you see God's flourishing in riches and gold and, and, and shining precious metals? The most in the temple. But even the temple has, has um, dried up in a sense. The temple, in verse 13, has been uh, taken. The, um, the drink offerings and the grain, they're withheld from the house of God. In verses 15 through 20, now here's the big theme. You'll see it in chapter, in verses 15 through 20 of chapter 1, and then we'll cover it again in chapter 2. So let's read slowly here. Look at 115. Why should you grieve? Look at verse 15. Woe because of that day. For what, ha- what is near? The what? The day of the Lord. Now, listen. The day of the Lord, if you read Obadiah verses 15 through 20, you know what the day of the Lord is? And that was before Joel, most likely. In um, Obadiah 15 through 20, Obadiah prophesied, the day of the Lord means that all of our national enemies will be destroyed and our nation will be saved and raised up and exalted and we will be God's people in God's place forever. So the day of the Lord was good news. I can't wait for the day of the Lord. For us today, the day of the Lord would be the second coming where God raises all of the people in Christ from the dead and we, we live in God's kingdom forever. Okay, that, that's the day of the Lord for us. That's good news, right? And so what, what happens here, though, is um, Joel takes this good news, smiley, happy day of the Lord theme, and he flips it on its head. So look at verse 15. For the day of the Lord is near, and you might celebrate, and will come as devastation from the Almighty. Great, God, kill these enemies. Kill our enemies and, and exalt us. Save us. Hosanna, save us. But then it goes on, what what is this day? Hasn't the food been cut off before our eyes? Joy and gladness from the house of our God? So in other words, this judgment's not on the nations, it's on who? It's on Israel. It's on us. This is why we need to weep and wail. The day of the Lord's not just on them. God's judging not just their sin, but our sin. Verse 17, the seeds lie shriveled in their casings. The storehouses are in ruin. The granaries are broken down because the grain has withered away. How the animals groan. You can't feed your animals. The herds of cattle wander in confusion since they have no pasture. There's no grass. Even the flocks of sheep and goats suffer punishment. And so this is the tragedy. And so Joel prays, I call to you, Lord, for fire has consumed the pastures of the wilderness. And flames have devoured all the trees of the orchard. Even the wild animals cry out to you, for the riverbeds are dried up and fire has consumed the pastures of the wilderness. I'm praying to you. Even the animals are praying to you. What do we do when we're in tragedy? We pray to God. Because judgment has fallen on God's house. Go to chapter 2, verse 2. Why else should we recognize and weep and lament this coming judgment? Look at chapter 2, verse 1. Blow the horn in Zion, sound the alarm on my holy mountain. Let the residents of the land tremble. Why? For the day of the Lord is what? It's coming. In fact, it is what? It's near. And what is this day of the Lord? This day, now I would define the day of the Lord here. Let me just tell you what, it, what I think it is and then you'll see here. The day of the Lord, look up here for a second. The day of the Lord is the day when God supernaturally intervenes to judge his enemies and save his people forever. That's the day of the Lord. It's a, it's a period of time. It's not one day like 24 hours. It's a period of time when God would come and bring final judgment on his enemies and those cut off from him and save his people. That's the final time, okay? So here's the day of the Lord. It's near. And what is this day? Look at verse 2. Here's the description now. Verses 2 through 11. A day of what? Darkness and gloom. I want you to keep that in your mind, the darkness and gloom part of this day, okay? 
It's going to come up three more times in this, in this book. A day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and total what? Total darkness. Like the dawn spreading over the mountains, a great and strong people appears. So, so this, this strong darkness is such, it's a great and strong people that appear, such as never existed in ages past and never will again in all the generations to come. A, fi- a fire devours in front of this great people, this great and strong people, and behind them a flame blazes. The land in front of them is like the Garden of Eden, but behind them it's like a desert wasteland. There is no escape from them. Their appearance is like that of horses, and they gallop like war horses. They bound on the tops of mountains. Their sound is like the sound of chariots, like the sound of fiery flames consuming stubble, like a mighty army deployed for war. Nations writhe in horror before this army that's never been seen before, this strong and mighty army. All faces turn pale. They attack us as warriors attack. They scale walls as men of war do. These are like super soldiers. They scale walls as men of war do. Each one goes on his own path. They don't even go together and they don't change their course. They don't push each other. Each one proceeds on his own path. They're all like one-man armies. One-man armies. A bunch of super soldiers here who are able to do their own thing. They don't even need their unit together as they invade. They Look at this in verse 8. They dodge arrows, never stopping. Today that would be like they dodge bullets as they run through. They don't even need their unit with them. They just dodge the arrows as they're going to invade individually. This is a crazy, mighty, strong army that's invading. They storm the city. They run on the wall. They climb into the houses and they enter the windows like thieves. The earthquakes before them. It's this supernatural idea here, the symbolism, the earthquakes before them. The sky shakes. Listen to this. The sun and moon grow what? Dark, that's going to be important. That, that's picked up in the New Testament, Acts chapter 2. The sun and the moon grow dark, and the stars cease their shining. The Lord makes his voice heard in the presence of his army. His army. His camp is very large. Those who carry out his command are powerful. Indeed, the day of the Lord is terrible and dreadful. Who can endure this day of the Lord? This is God's army, his chosen army to sweep across and devastate his land. This is tragic. This is God's promised land that's about to be overran. These are God's people that are about to be dominated and decimated and exiled and kicked out and scattered. This is like, the exile is like the fall in the Garden of Eden, right? And it even picks it up itself. It says that in verse 3, doesn't it? Look at verse 3 again. This army, a fire is in front of them, and behind them are a flame, of, a flame blazes. The land in front of them is like what? The Garden of Eden. But, but behind them, it's like a what? Desert wasteland. Okay, so picture that this, okay, just picture locusts, right? If this was a, just think this pulpit was, you know, not this small, but just think this area was filled with trees and flourishing, right? And so here come the locusts. The locusts come, and they devour everything, and then the locusts leave, and what do you have left? Nothing. It's a wasteland, Okay. And same thing, this army's going to come through the promised land. Here comes the army, like locusts. They come, they decimate the promised land. They leave, and is it still land flowing with milk and honey? No. Just like the Garden of Eden. Just like the Garden of Eden. Now, an army didn't come through the Garden of Eden, but just like Adam and Eve were living in in a land flourishing, no curse, no pain, no sin. God walks among them in the garden. That's what it was like to live in the Garden of Eden. And when they sinned, they were taken from the land and put out into the wilderness and decimated with no resources at all. 
That's what it's like when God's judgment comes. The final judgment is similar. God's people, or those who are not God's people, will be taken from this earth, and they will be raised from the dead, and they'll be judged by God, and they'll be thrown into the lake of fire. And that is like the wasteland. Forever to be crushed under God's wrath forever. That's the judgment that's coming. And so what does, what does Joel tell us? Sound the alarm. An army is coming. Now, turn to Deuteronomy. Turn to the, um, keep your finger in Joel, but turn to Deuteronomy 28. This is important. We're doing a little bit of Old Testament theology, which is actually even New Testament theology because there is just one theology for the Bible. But we're going to do a lot of Old Testament work here this morning so that you can hopefully understand your Old Testaments a little bit better and how it points to Jesus and connects to us. Now, this is not new. If you had a national tragedy happen and you're the promised people in the promised land and you had a national tragedy and locusts swept across your land and decimated everything, who would you look to? You look to who? To God, right? And to find out what God says, you would look to his what? His word. You look to the Bible. And so if you turn to Deuteronomy 28, look at Deuteronomy 28, 15. If you do not obey Yahweh your God by carefully following all his commands and statutes I am giving you today, Moses says, this Israelic covenant, the old Israelic covenant given by Moses, if you don't obey this covenant, what's going to come and overtake you? What? All these what? Curses, not blessings. You break the Israelic covenant, you break the old Israelic covenant through Moses, you get curses. Look at verse 28 now. Is it 28? I'm sorry, verse 38. Verse 38. Listen to this. This is part of the curses. You will sow much seed in the field in your promised land, but you'll harvest what? Little. Why? Because what? Locusts will devour it. You will plant and cultivate vineyards, but not drink the wine or gather the grapes. Why? Because what? Worms will eat them. Why do locusts eat? Why do the worms eat up their stuff? Because they have disobeyed the, the, the um, Israelic what? Covenant. You break the covenant, curses. You know what's going to happen? Locusts. I'm going to send locusts to you, and they're going to eat your stuff, and you're not going to have food. So now here Joel's prophesying, and there's locusts. So if you're saying, well, what does this mean? Well, read the book, right? God told us through Moses hundreds of years before that if we broke the covenant, locusts would come and eat our stuff. Well, okay, so let's read on. If locusts are going to eat our stuff, what does that mean for us? Well, look at verse 45. I'm going to read 45 to 53. All these curses will come. We broke the covenant. Locusts are here. If locusts come, that's just the beginning. What else is going to come? All these curses will come, pursue, and overtake you until you are what? Destroyed, since you did not obey Yahweh your God and keep the commands and statutes he gave you in the Israelite covenant. These curses will be a sign and wonder against you and your descendants forever. Because you didn't serve Yahweh your God with joy and a cheerful heart. It doesn't just matter the outside. Joy and a cheerful heart on the inside. Even though you had an abundance of everything, you will serve your enemies. Yahweh will send against you in famine, thirst, nakedness, and lack, and a lack of everything. He will place an iron, iron yoke on your neck until he has destroyed you. Yahweh will bring a nation from far away from the ends of the earth to swoop down on you like an eagle. Does that sound familiar? Does that sound like kind of the description we just read in Joel? This massive, powerful army? They'll swoop on you like an eagle, a nation whose language you don't understand. 
a ruthless nation showing no respect for the old and not sparing the young. They will eat the offspring of your livestock and your land's produce until you are destroyed. They will leave you no grain, new wine, fresh oil, young of your herds or newborn of your flocks until they cause you to perish. They will besiege you within your city, within all your city gates, until your high and fortified walls that you trust in come down throughout your land. They will besiege you within all your city gates throughout the land Yahweh your God has given you. Devastation. Exile. It's prophesied, right? You break the covenant, locusts are coming. You know who's following locusts? An army. And they're going to decimate your land. It's going to be so desperate, just to take one more verse, look at verse 53. It's going to be so desperate, guess what you're going to do? You will eat your offspring. The flesh of your sons and daughters the Lord has given you during the siege and hardship your enemy imposes on you. You're going to be so hungry, you're going to eat your kids. And that happened historically. That happened in Israel. They were eating their children to survive because there was no food. Because the curses of God fell on them for breaking the Israelite covenant. And Joel is prophesying before that exile comes and says, hey, locusts have come. Guess what else is coming? Exile. So what do we need to do? We need to call a corporate prayer meeting, get on our faces before the Lord, tear our clothes, and weep, and ask God for forgiveness. We need to lament broken before God. That's what we need to do. So, so when you see national tragedy, when they saw national tragedy, they should have known exactly what to do. Because Deuteronomy 28, and then when you get to 30, it tells us what to do. So what does that, what does that mean for us? How does it apply to us? For our, for our nation, for Los Angeles, for all the peoples in the world, not just Christians, all society, judgment is coming for us. This is not just true for Christians. Judgment is coming for Los Angeles. Judgment is coming for California. Judgment is coming for the United States. Judgment is coming for every nation and all ethnic people groups. It is coming for us and all humanity. We need to get ready. We need to recognize that we are not going to escape this judgment. Church family, what does this mean for us? This church will not escape judgment. We will stand before God to give an account for our membership and what we've done in our days together. We are going to give an account. We cannot escape judgment. No churches can escape judgment. Christians and non-Christians, you're not going to escape judgment either, individually. All of you will individually stand before God to give an account for your life. You can run, but you can't hide. God is coming. Judgment is coming. The good news is that God is not doing a sneak attack as you sit here this morning. By you being here this morning, guess what? God's saying, I'm not trying to sneak up on you. I'm warning you. Recognize it. Wake up. Wail. Weep. God is warning us because he actively loves us right now and is speaking to us through this book. So again, the main goal, prepare yourself as judgment day draws near so that you survive and thrive in the coming, judge, in the, uh, in the coming kingdom. So how do you prepare for this judgment? By recognizing the judgment, but secondly, by repenting from the sin that judges us, repenting from the sin that damns us. And this is the smallest section, verses 12 through 13, 17 of chapter 2. Go back to Joel chapter 2 and pick up in verse 12. 12 through 17. Listen to this. Here's the command. Even now, this is the Lord's declaration. Listen to the command. Turn to me with what? With all your heart, with fasting, weeping, and mourning. 
Tear your hearts, not just your clothes, and return to the Lord your God. I hope your finger's still in Deuteronomy because we're going to go right back there. Sorry if I didn't tell you to do that. But listen here. Here's the main command of the book. What is it in verse 13 or verse 12? Turn what? Turn to who? Turn to God with what? With all your heart, with fasting, weeping, and mourning. And then verse 13, what's the next verb there? What are you supposed to do? Tear your hearts, not just your clothes, and return to Yahweh your God. You know what we call this in one word? What do we call this? Turning to God, weeping, wailing, mourning, tearing your heart, and returning back to God. What do we call that? Repentance. You want to know a biblical theology of repentance in the Old Testament? This is it. This is the, the key passage for repentance in the Old Testament. You know why? Because this is describing Deuteronomy 30. So keep your finger here in, um, in this. Go back to Deuteronomy 30 one more time. Last time in Deuteronomy. But you need to know, that, again, Old Testament work here, some Old Testament theology. But we, if we're going to know the Bible well, we need to know our Old Testament because Peter picks up on this in Acts chapter 2. Deuteronomy 30 verse 1. Remember, the locusts, the invasion, the exile. When all these things happen to you, verse 1, the blessings and curses I have set before you, so you're exiled now. When all this happens to you, and you what? You come to what? Here's repentance. You come to your senses while you are in all the nations where the Lord your God has driven you. When you're in exile, and you come to your senses, and you and your children do what? Verse 2, you and your children what? Return to Yahweh your God and obey Him with all your heart and with all your soul by doing everything I commanded you today. Then I'll restore your fortunes. Look at verse 6. Verse 6 also describes repentance here. The Lord your God will circumcise your what? Your hearts, not just your body. Circumcise your hearts and the hearts of your descendants, and you will love him with all your heart and all your soul so that you will live. In other words, God will change your heart. He'll take out your heart of stone and put in a heart of flesh. He'll, take out your, he'll give you a spirit, his own spirit, to live within you, and you'll walk in his ways. Look at verse 8. Then you will again obey him and follow all his commands I am commanding you today. And look at verse 10. When you obey the Lord your God by keeping his commands and statutes that are written in this book, this book of the law, and return to him with all your heart and with all your soul. Okay, keep your finger in Deuteronomy 30 for one more passage later. Just keep your finger there. But here's what it's saying. He already prophesied. Moses said, guess what? I'm giving you this covenant. And are you going to break it or keep it? You're going to what? You're going to break it. And guess what? When you break it, you know what God's going to do? He's going to... He's going to exile you. He's going to kick you out. And then when he exiles you out, guess what, guess what you're going to do while you're exiled? You're going to come to your senses. And you're going to repent. And you're going to return. And I'm going to change your heart. And I'm going to circumcise your heart. And guess what? I'm going to bring you back into the land. I'm going to bring you back into the kingdom. And you will reign here forever. But you need to repent and turn to me. So Deuteronomy 30, it is the classic Old Testament text of the prophecy of the great repentance. And when does the great repentance happen? Well, Joel, Joel's telling us the great repentance. So you go to Psalm 51. That's our favorite passage for Old Testament repentance, right? David commits adultery. He repents. Psalm 51, created me a clean heart. Great prayer. Great thing to do. That's not the core repentance passage in the Old Testament. Joel 2, 12 through 17 is. So we're going to do a meditation here on defining repentance. Keep your finger in Deuteronomy 30. We're going to go back there one more time in a little bit. But let's look now here at Joel chapter 2. If this is the key passage on repentance, Joel 2, 12 through 17, then we need to learn repentance from this passage, okay? So here's what we're gonna do. I'm gonna point out here in this passage, verses 12 through 17, six elements of repentance, okay? Six elements of biblical repentance that God has prophesied, that he's calling for here, and that he's gonna fulfill in the new covenant. Here are the six elements of biblical repentance. 
Number one, look at verse 12 again. Turn to me with all your heart. It's not just with all your heart, it's with what? With fasting, weeping, and what? Mourning. Here's the first element. Biblical repentance is external. Fasting, weeping, mourning. You can see those things. It's external. It's on the outside. It's visible. Fasting means you're so broken over your sin that you're not even going to eat until you repent. That, in other words, repentance has become a priority in your life over food. It's visible. Why aren't you, why aren't you eating? Because I'm so broken over my sin. I'm so broken over our sin that we need God's forgiveness. And you pray that. That's an external manifestation. It, um, and then later in verses 16 and 17, it says, let the groom leave his bedroom and the bride her, her, um, her honeymoon chamber. So what are you putting off? You're putting off food. And what are you putting off here in the honeymoon chamber? What are you putting off? Sexual intimacy, right? Repentance is so important externally, you're going to withhold um, you're going to withhold food and, and sex or even, and then it says later on in verse 17, let the priests and the Lord's ministers weep before the particle and altar. You're going to even put a hold on your religion. Stop the religious practices. Stop the sexual intimacy in marriage. Stop the eating. Stop it all. Let's repent before God. That's our priority. It's external. It's a priority. It's weeping. There's, it's, it's a grief that you feel. It's mourning like a loss that's felt, like, you, like a young woman losing her husband, a young wife losing her husband. That grief that she feels... That's what you should feel. It should be external. That's the first element. Second element of biblical repentance. It's not only external, it's also, well, look at verse 13. Tear your hearts and not just your what? Clothes. Not just on the outside. Not, don't just tear your clothes. Tear your what? Your heart. So it's not just external, it's internal. Repentance is internal. It's your heart and not just your clothes. You remember Jesus saying, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are what? far from me. It's not just the outside, it's the inside too. But note this, because I think for us in our circles, rightfully so, we emphasize the inside, but get this, it's not just the inside, it's also the what? Outside. It's not just internal, it's also external. It's both. If you neglect the internal, you're fake. I'm pretending I'm repenting, I'm not really repenting. If you only, if you neglect the external, then you're a walking contradiction. No one can question my Christianity because I'm a Christian in my heart and no one can tell me I'm right or wrong. Wrong. Just because you say you're a Christian doesn't make you a Christian. It's not just internal, it's external. Are you weeping? Are you mourning? Are you grieving with your church family? Because it's, it, we're going to find out it's not just individual, it's corporate. If not, you could say you're a Christian all you want, but that's just your own personal opinion. So it's internal, it's external. Thirdly, it's Godward. Look at verse 13 again. Return to who? Tear your hearts, not just your clothes, and return to who? Return to who? The Lord. So it's Godward. You're, you're turning to God. You're not turning to another sin. You don't just turn from one priority to another priority. You turn from other priorities to God himself. It's Godward. Fourth, look at verse 14. Who knows? He may turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him so, that, so you can offer grain and new wine to the Lord. Who knows? What does that mean? Repentance is submissive to God. If you're repenting and saying, God, if I repent, you have to do this. Is that repentance? No. If you're trying to make a deal with God and you're trying to manipulate God, God, if I repent, then you have to fill in the blank. You have to make our church healthy. You have to make me healthy again. You have to make my marriage work. You have to, if I do this, God, you have to do this. That is not repentance. It is submissive to God, not making a deal with God. Maybe God will forgive us. Maybe God will restore land. Maybe he won't. But either way, we repent because we're submitting. We're submitting. We're submissive. And then verse, uh, uh, verse 15 and 16, it's corporate. 
Look at verse 15. Blow the horn in Zion, announce a sacred fast, proclaim a what? An assembly, that's a gathering. Gather the people, sanctify the what? The congregation, assemble the aged, gather the infants, everybody, even babies nursing at the breast. Let the groom come, let the bride come, let the priest come. So, so, so repentance is never only individual. It is always individual and corporate. It's individual and corporate. It's not only corporate. It is individual. If you're just part of a group and the group is repenting and you're not individually repenting, you're not personally repenting, you're not repenting. But it's not only personal. It's ecclesial. You do it as a church and as an individual or else you're not really repenting. Okay, you do it together. It's corporate. It's communicative. You're, you're inviting people. Hey, come on, let's get together. Let's repent together. That's why every Sunday we're praying and confessing our sins together. And then lastly, just like, just like Joel did earlier in verse 17, um, it says, there's another command at the end of verse 17, let them say or let them pray, pray to God. And what do you say to God? Have pity on your people, Lord, and do not make your inheritance a disgrace an object of scorn among the nations. Why should it be said among the peoples, where is their God? So why are, what is the sixth element? It's prayerful. Repentance is praying to God, okay? It's prayerful. So repentance is external, it's internal, it's Godward, it's submissive, it's not trying to make a deal. It's corporate, it's not merely individual, and it's prayerful to God. Now, why should we repent? Why should we repent externally and internally and submissively and corporately and prayerfully to God, Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? Why should we repent? Answer verse 13 and 14. Or verse 13, yeah, look at verse 13 again. Why should you repent, tear your hearts, and return to God? For what? He is what? I love this. He is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in faithful love, and he relents from sending disaster. Why should we return? Because God is merciful. He's gracious. He forgives. He might even relent from the judgment. So we repent because God is kind and loving. It's the kindness of God, Romans 2, 4 says, that leads us to what? It's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. Because God is gracious and merciful, you should repent. And you know why God is gracious and merciful to you? Why is God gracious and compassionate and slow to anger and abounding in faithful love and relenting from sending disaster? Why is God like that? You know why? Because he was not gracious to Jesus on the cross. He was not compassionate to Jesus on the cross when Christ cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He didn't get compassion in response. He got judgment. God was not slow to anger with Jesus on the cross. He poured out his anger on Jesus on the cross. He wasn't abounding in faithful love. He cut Jesus off from faithful covenant love. He abandoned him. He forsook him. And, and God did not relent from sending disaster on Jesus. Jesus prayed that he would relent, didn't he? Let this cup be what? Pass from me. And God said, no, I will not relent from sending disaster on you. You will take the full brunt of the disaster and wrath and judgment on you for your people. And Jesus did. He died for our sins. He took the penalty that we deserve so that we can repent and be, have gracious, grace, compassion, slowness to anger, faithful love, and a God who relents from judging us. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Why? Because Christ took the condemnation. That's why God is good to us. So why should we repent? Because God is gracious and forgiving. He's patient. He's not, he doesn't have a short fuse like you and like me. He's long-suffering. 
If you're not a Christian, this is the good news of the gospel. If you forget everything else I say and you're not a Christian, listen to this. We're thankful you're here. This is what God wants you to know. God made you. He owns you. He owns us all. And we are made to enjoy and and spend time with him and enjoy him and reflect him in this world. But we rebelled against God. We didn't want God's design. We didn't want him. We wanted to reflect ourselves. We wanted to build up our own name, not his, by reflecting him joyfully. And so God damns us and condemns us for our sins. The penalty for that is devastation, decimation, exile, judgment, condemnation, in the lake of fire, forever and ever away from God's presence. That's the judgment. But God sent Jesus, like I just said, to take our sin for us, to live for us, to die for us and our sins and rise from the dead. So that if you turn to God, if you tear your hearts, and if you weep with weeping, mourning, and fasting, and you just look to Jesus, you turn to Jesus, and you call on him to save you, God will save you. That's the gospel. So if you're not a Christian, God is inviting you to repent and trust in Jesus. If you are a Christian, here's what you need to learn. Don't move past repentance. Christians, get this in your mind. You never move past repentance. You only move forward through repentance, or you don't move forward at all. If you're a Christian, you haven't repented regularly, you haven't grown. If you haven't confessed sin regularly, if you haven't been convicted where your heart was torn because of your sin, you haven't been growing. You've been deluding yourself. If you're going to grow, you don't move on from repentance. You move forward through repentance and trusting in Jesus Christ. That's the only way to grow. That's the only way to, to, to grow spiritually, individually, and as a church, to trust Christ afresh, daily, hourly, regularly, together and individually. Let us in this church cultivate a community of repentance, a community of forgiveness, a culture of grace. It doesn't come through faking it. It comes through confessing it and repenting from it. God doesn't, here's the good news. God doesn't call you to fake righteousness or disregard it. He calls you to be real, to face your sin, to look at judgment and repent before him and trust in Jesus. So how do we prepare ourselves for judgment? Three things. Number one, recognize your coming judgment. It's coming. Number two, repent from your sin that incurs that judgment. And number three, rejoice in the hope that God will deliver us finally from judgment. Rejoice in the hope that God will deliver us finally from judgment. Lastly, chapter two, verses 18 through chapter 321. Obviously, we don't have time to read every verse here. I will summarize it for you, but let's get the point here because there's some goodness here. So here's the command in chapter 2, verse 21. 2.21 says this. Don't be afraid, land. Don't be afraid of the judgment. Rejoice and be glad. Why? For the Lord has done what? Astonishing things. Don't be afraid, wild animals, for the wilderness pastures have turned green. The trees bear their fruit, and the fig tree and grapevine yield their riches. Children of Zion, don't be sad, ultimately. Don't be afraid, ultimately. What should you do? Rejoice in what? Rejoice and be glad in who? In the Lord your God. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I'll say it. Rejoice. Why? Because he gives you the autumn rain for your vindication. He sends showers for you. Both autumn and spring rain as before. The threshing floors will be full of grain and the vats will overflow with new wine and fresh oil. As you repent and trust in God, what does he do? Look at verse 18. As we repent before God, corporately and individually, what's the response of God in verse 18? Then the Lord became what? 
jealous for his land, and he spared his people. The Lord answered his people, look, I'm about to send you grain, new wine, fresh oil. You'll be satiated with them, and I will no longer make you a disgrace among the nations. I will drive the northerner far from you and banish him to a dry and desolate land. All those people, the locusts who took over your land, I'm going to drive them away. His front ranks into the Dead Sea and his rear guard into the Mediterranean Sea. His stench will rise. Yes, I'll kill him. His rotten smell will rise, for he has done astonishing things. God will deliver you from your enemies, people. If you're God's people, he will deliver you from your, from your enemies. He will, verse 25 through 27, it says here that he's going to give this abundance. It was all devastated, the land, but now you're going to have abundance. And then here it is. Here's the kicker. And this is the big thing for the New Testament, verse 28. Here's what Peter quotes on the day of Pentecost, 50 days after Jesus rose from the dead, 10 days after he ascended. We, we, we talked about this a few weeks ago. Here's the promise. That here's, gonna ha- here's what's going to happen in this restoration of God's kingdom with abundance and vindication. Verse 28, after this, I will pour out what or who? I'll pour out my spirit on all humanity. Then your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your old men will have dreams and your young men will see visions. I will even pour out my spirit on the male and female slaves in those days. I will display wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood, fire, and columns of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon will be turned to what? Blood before the great and terrible day of the Lord comes. Then everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Here's the promise. When God's day comes, he will pour out his spirit on humanity. And they will love him. And they will trust him. And they will turn to him. And, it's gonna, and the sun is going to turn dark. The moon is going to turn to what? Blood. And darkness will cover the earth. And then God, then everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And so restoration will come. And Peter picks this up. When, when, the, when the day of Pentecost happened and the Holy Spirit came down, and everyone said, look at all these guys, they're drunk. Peter says, we're not drunk. Read Joel 2, 28 to 32. God said he's going to pour out his spirit. That's what's happening right now. It began to be fulfilled. It's continuing to be fulfilled until Christ brings the full fulfillment on the last day. Now, um, after this, in chapter 3, verses 1 through 21, in chapter 3, judgment is going to come on God's enemies. He's going to, because they curse God's people 1 through 8, God will curse them. In verses 9 through 11, um, he says, come on, he basically says, come on, nations, you want to fight me? Get ready for war. See if, you can, see, see if you can take me on. And in verse 12, he says, let the nations be roused. Let them come to the valley of Jehoshaphat. Let them come and fight me, for there I will sit down to judge all the surrounding nations. And then this is a... a an allusion to Revelation 14, verse 19. Swing the sickle because the harvest is ripe. Come and trample the grapes because the wine press is full. The wine vats overflow because the wickedness of the nations is extreme. Come on, nations, you want to come? Come together and fight me, God is saying, because when you fight me, I'm going to swing my sickle, gather all you grapes, I'm going to put you in the wine press, and I'm going to trample you like the grapes of wrath under my judgment, and I will deliver my people. And then verse 15, what does it say during this judgment day? This final, this final day of the Lord, this final judgment. The sun and moon will what? Will grow dark and the sun and stars will what? Cease their shining. And then verses 17 through 21, it's going to be like a land flowing with milk and honey. In verse 18, the mountains will drip with sweet wine and the hills will flow with milk. A land flowing with milk and honey. And uh, all the streams of Judah will flow with water, and the spring will issue from Yahweh's house, watering the valley of Acacias. That's what it's talking about in Revelation 22, that the water is going to flow from the spring of the throne of God in the new earth. That's what it's talking about here, I believe. 
And in that day, verse 21, here's the sweet news of the gospel again, one more time. I will pardon their what? Their blood guilt, which I have not pardoned, for the Lord dwells in Zion. God will forgive. He will judge his enemies. He will forgive his people who come to Jesus Christ. And he will pour out his spirit on them. And he will forgive their sins. That's a new covenant, right? That's a new Israeli covenant. Now, he's not using the, the word new covenant, but this is the new Israeli covenant applied, as you see here in the book of Joel. Now, I want to put, pick up on one more thing before I close, just to encourage you one last time. time. Look at verse 15 of chapter 3. The sun will grow what? Will grow dark and the stars will cease to shine. That's talking about the final judgment day. When Christ returns in final judgment day, the sun's going to grow dark and the moon will turn to blood or, or, or it'll grow dark. But remember, when the exile came and the, the nation came in, in chapter 2, verse 10, remember this army that came in? What, how did it describe it in chapter 2, verse 10? The earth quakes before them and the sky shakes. The sun and moon will grow dark and the stars will cease their shining. So when did the sun and moon go dark? During the exile, when the nation came, right? Guys, follow me here. You see that? Sun and moon grows dark during the exile when the nation came to exile Israel. And I just talked about chapter 3. The sun and moon will grow dark on the final judgment day. But there was a middle one in Joel 2, verse 31, where the sun will be turned to darkness and the moon will be turned to blood, and then everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. What is that talking about? It's not just the exile here from the land. It's not just the final judgment when you're exiled into the lake of fire. But where was this one? On the what? On the cross. When Christ hung from noon to 3 p.m. in what? In darkness. And the earth shook. And the curtain tore in what? In two. The cataclysmic judgment on Israel in the promised land, the cataclysmic judgment on the end and the final judgment day was the cataclysmic judgment put on Jesus on the cross so that we will never face that cataclysmic judgment. We will be delivered from it because of Jesus Christ. That's our hope. Christ is coming again. We're, that, that's the hope we live with as Christians in this world. So we suffer we make sacrifices. We obey God. We take on persecution. We accept suffering from Christians and non-Christians. We take opposition. We accept physical sufferings from this broken, cursed world. And we keep trusting in Jesus and telling people about Jesus until we die because he is coming again. And he will save us. The new earth is coming. Christ is returning. And that is our good news. So we set our mind on things above, not on things of this earth. We set our mind where Christ is, who's going to return. As a church family, we pray regularly, Maranatha, come Lord Jesus. We rejoice in hope, in suffering. That's how we prepare for judgment day. We prepare by recognizing judgment is coming, repenting from our sins, and rejoicing in the hope through the coming judgment. So here's my call to you, my final call. I want you, I'm calling you, to make the personal choice to repent deeply, thoroughly and daily, regularly, today and every day, and, and as you look to Jesus Christ. That would be the ultimate application of this, that you individually and us as a church repent deeper, more thoroughly, and more regularly. So how are you going to do that today? How are you going to do that this week? How are you going to do that with our church family? How are you going to repent more deep, more regular, more consistent? We need to, and turn to see Jesus. If we don't repent more, regularly and take this judgment to heart, we will die in our sins and be damned or will be dominated by unnecessary fear of death. If you don't want to fear death and judgment, you want to experience grace and hope and thriving in Christ, 
both now and on the final judgment day, then repent regularly and turn to Jesus frequently. You know, um, one saint, I, I said this earlier, one saint um, who's now gone on to be with glory, um, facing death, there was a, the, the moment of fear. And what that saint needed was this hope. Jesus died for you. Jesus rose for you. We are not alone. You are not alone as you face death. And all of you here face death. You are not alone. Christ is with you. And we need to remind each other of that. So let's repent in our hearts and in our lives and turn completely to the Lord so that he'll save us both now and on judgment day. Father, please help us to repent and come to you regularly, repeatedly, internally, externally, together, individually, in prayer, looking to Christ because the judgment is coming. We thank you for your word. We pray that you'd help, it, help us to hide in our hearts that we would not sin against you. In Jesus' name, amen.